We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is William Vogley. Bill is a senior editor at the Claremont Review of Books and the author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, one of the most insightful books on the welfare state I've ever read. Bill, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Great to talk to you, Don. Your book raises really profound questions about why people believe in the welfare state, why some don't, and why it's hard to change people's mind in this issue. And so that's really what I want to dig into. But let's start with just what is your definition of the welfare state? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, <laughs> that, that sounds very basic, but it's um, um, it's the source of some controversy. I don't think anyone has come up with a um, definition of the welfare state that's as uh, precise as, say, the definition of an isosceles triangle, you know. Um, I think operationally it means the, um, certainly in America, um, the, the cluster of government programs uh, designed to um, uh, create a safety net, to promote economic uh, uh, equality and opportunity, to um, uh, do what the market isn't or what people perceive the market doesn't do for uh, ec- promoting economic security. Now, in your book, I mean, that really comes into existence in America with the New Deal. And in your book, you talk about the arguments that led to it. But that one, the, I think an aspect that is worth pausing on is the fact that it took roughly 50 years, depending on when you start it, for the left to really succeed in establishing a welfare state. Can you say a little bit about why Americans were so resistant to it in the decades leading up to 1935 and the Social Security Act? Yes, I think that um, <clears throat> there, uh, 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 the American understanding of uh, uh, the American experiment in self-government um, was strongly Jeffersonian, um, and um, one of the Im- very interesting and important ways that Franklin Roosevelt took a different tack than the preceding Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson, was for FDR to um, present himself and his program as the fulfillment of uh, or or the elaboration of the America's uh, founding principles, whereas Wilson was the first um, uh, president uh, to present himself explicitly as a critic of, as, as offering people um, uh, an agenda that uh, explicitly committed to the idea that uh, that the founding had been in some fundamental ways mistaken and what we needed was corrective for it. So um, the, uh, the Jeffersonian idea that we should be suspicious of government, that um, if government got too big, it would 
pause, uh, push us around and take too many of our resources and circumscribe our rights. Um, this was um, uh, this was deeply woven into the uh, fabric of the American um, polity, let's say. Um, FDR, with the um, tremendous uh, apprehensions uh, created by the uh, Great Depression, um, tried to, instead of saying, uh, let's toss the founding aside, to say that if Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison and George Washington and Ben Franklin, if they were here today in America in 19... Uh, 32-36, they would be New Dealers. They would be enthusiasts about um, uh, applying their ideas to the modern situation in a way like the one I'm proposing here. Yeah, I think one of the uh, a fascinating point that you make in that regard is the progressives were openly attacking the founding and in many ways, whereas the New Dealers and FDR, they co-opt the language of the founding. And so instead of saying individual rights shouldn't limit government, they in fact say, well, what we're doing is expanding our set of rights into these welfare rights, such as a right to a job or a right to health care, um, which comes about later and so on. This was all finally, in, in, in a certain sense, the culmination of this political and rhetorical project is in um, um, President Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union address, where uh, it, it was mostly a report, given the what was going on in the world at the time, it was mostly a report on um, America's progress in waging and winning World War II. But towards the end uh, of the speech, he uh, offers uh, what he called a second Bill of Rights, um, which he said was the logical extension of um, um, what uh, had uh, what Madison had done in 1789 with the first Bill of Rights, um, and as you say, this was a, pretty much a, a laundry list of um, every kind of welfare uh, benefit that one could uh, come up with: uh, health, education, welfare, housing, uh, employment. Um, the right of some of them are uh, e even enthusiasts for the uh, Second Bill of Rights today are a little embarrassed by some of them. The right of um, every farmer to make a good living. Um, the uh, legal uh, scholar Cass Sunstein wrote a book uh, hailing uh, FDR's speech as the greatest speech of the 20th century, but even he said, well, no. Uh, you you can't guarantee that every farmer is supposed to make a profit any more than every travel agent or uh, insurance company. You know. Um, so how how would you kind of define the difference then between the rights that the founders talked about and the rights that FDR is talking about? Uh, I think the um, the old terminology of the distinction between um, negative and positive rights. Um, helps a good deal. Um, the, uh, the first, <laughs> the Bill of Rights, what um, uh, FDR would have us think of as the first Bill of Rights, <laughs> um, was mostly about um, 
uh, a sense of personal autonomy that um, uh, because you had a right to uh, free speech that uh, the government uh, couldn't interfere with you because you had the right to um, own your property. The government uh, couldn't just take it away because it decided that it had a better idea of how to use it. Um, so this was uh, this was a, a sort of a matter of um, living within a, uh, a defensible perimeter. Um, whereas the logic of the Second Bill of Rights is that you have uh, the the rights uh, you have rights to welfare benefits. You have rights to have things given to you and done for you. Um, and the logic of <clears throat> um, declaring those rights is that. Um, uh, as, as FDR said many, many times in the course of his um, political career, necessitous men are not free men. People who are um, who don't have jobs, who are uh, don't have houses. Um, that these are the uh, and you know sort of pointing to the horrible examples uh, uh, in Europe at the in the 1930s. He said these are the um, uh, materials of which. Um, dictatorships and tyrannies are made. So if we don't want the people to um, overthrow government and give up on democracy altogether, we have to um, uh, safeguard this experiment in self-government by giving people assurances that they will they will have these benefits no matter what. Yeah, so just to stress part of what's implicit, what you're saying is that this idea of welfare rights or positive rights, what it really means is that you're entitled to have other people give things to you that they have to create. So it's it, it's not just a freedom of action, but the right to the unearned. Uh, that's right. And um, realizing that making that point explicit um, would be going back to this these Jeffersonian headwinds the New Deal was sailing into and attempting to navigate. Um, the um, the advocates for the notion of welfare rights um, are careful not to push that point too hard, not to make the um, uh, ideas that are inherent in it too explicit and clear. You're quite right that to say that um, uh, people who have an insufficiency of some material goods have a right to uh, have that uh, insufficiency brought up to the kind of a minimum standard of living um, means that they have a stronger claim on what amounts to the excess wealth that other people own than the owners of that wealth do themselves, right? Um, what um, the, the rhetorical um, uh, fudge that... Um, um, American liberals have been fond of for nearly a century now has uh, been to say that um, the the various benefits specified in FDR's second bill of rights, housing, welfare, education, and so forth, that these should be given to people, uh, the phrase is, as a matter of right. Um, that's a very deft uh, sort of um, Rorschach test kind of uh, formulation. It allows people to hear what they want to hear. If you say that it should, if you say that um, welfare benefits should be given to people as a matter of right, then you um, um, 
you say to the people who really want there to be rights, period, full stop, well, okay, we're, we're functioning their rights. I mean, we're, operationally, that's how we're going to proceed. To people who still have deep misgivings about this and don't like the implications of where that argument is going, it says more reassuringly, well, we're giving it to them as a matter of right. Then we're kind of not really calling. It's not really a right. We're going to pretend. We're going to act as though it were. We're going to pretend, while sort of um, holding back the the full commitment to the idea, um, and the popularity of that as a matter of right formulation um, suggests to me that. Um, um, that liberals and advocates of the welfare state realize that they do have, in the American context still, a, uh, uh, a big problem here. Well, that's what I wanted to come to next. So let's fast forward to today. In today's debate, you describe in your book Americans as having a love-hate relationship with the welfare state. What do you mean by that? Um, as political scientists have been pointing out for um, a lot of years now, based on... Um, uh, public opinion surveys and um, just an analysis sort of of um, what people vote for, what they um, uh, vote against, that uh, people are, Americans are sort of ideologically conservative but operationally liberal. They, um, if you present to them as an abstract proposition, the idea that um, um, People have rights to uh, housing and, and medical care and um, good jobs and so forth. Um, you'll get a lot of resistance. People say, "No, that's you know, we're, this is a country of um, of uh, rugged individualism and um, um, people standing on their own two feet." But if um, f for all of the um, disagreement you'll get at kind of the level of theory. If you break it down into individual programs, um, people rather like the things that the government does for them and show a um, great opposite, you know, they, um, the, the, these uh, things that become people, as people come to expect things, after a while they come to feel entitled to them. Um, so that um, uh, when, whenever uh, anyone um, raises the question of curtailing um, uh, certain long-standing promised benefits, uh, there's a great deal of political pushback. Um, President uh, George W. Bush discovered this in the aftermath of his um, election in 2004 when he decided that um, reforming Social Security was going to be his chief domestic priority. And he, in a, um, in a vague sort of way, um, began moving the debate or attempting to move the debate in the direction of allowing people to um, divert a portion of their payroll taxes from the Social Security program into private investment accounts. Um, the... Um, uh, despite the fact that he'd, he'd won re-election, uh, despite the fact that the Republicans had um, made gains in both the House and the Senate elections that year, he was in the strongest uh, position <clears throat> he'd 
he'd been in really um, throughout his presidency, um, Democrats were able to stop that discussion uh, dead in its tracks. The idea never even got to a vote in either House of Congress, despite the fact that we were uh, GOP majorities in both. So um, people, um, not to put too fine a point on it, people like getting things. And um, the, the government, uh, the party in politics that uh, positions itself in America, it's the Democrats, as the party of giving people things, has a um, formidable advantage that is not easily uh, dislodged. Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, if you look at the debate pre-1935, you know, the, the left was trying to offer people things, and there was a real resistance. The idea was the world doesn't owe me a living, I don't want the unearned. Even when handouts were available, people often didn't take them because they regarded mm -hmm. as disgraceful. So it seems that something's definitely changed, and uh, I mean, part of it is the ideas and the culture to become more acceptable to to take the unearned. And I guess part of what I, I find interesting, I'm, I want to get your take on this, is which what do you think is the real, like what Americans really believe in, what they say abstractly, or what they do in action? Because it it strikes me that even though that they accept these you know, individual programs and handouts in action, like there always has to be a lot of murkiness about what's actually going on so that Social Security is presented not as a handout, but as an earned benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the same with Medicare and so on. So <laughs> I, I guess the, to put the question more simply, what do Americans really believe in your view? Um, yes, you, you could... Um trace that uh, sort of ambiguity and um, misdirection right up to the present day with um, President Obama promising people that um, his, uh, enacting his health re uh, care reforms um, would not, um, you know, as he, as he promised famously several times, if you like your doctor, you keep your doctor. If you like your health insurance program, you could keep your program. Um, uh, the the idea that um, um, I, I would put it this way that um, there's no necessary connection between um, conferring benefits and imposing costs. Um, I think uh, I, I guess the, the um, one way to to work towards uh, uh, answering your question. What do Americans really believe about all this? Would be to contrast uh, the American disposition uh, regarding these questions with uh, the European one. Um, um, the the political history in um, in America was we uh, gained independence and established a democracy first, and then only much later got into the business of um, uh, having the government attend in a in a ambitious and uh, thorough sort of way to these uh, welfare uh, programs. In um, in Europe, the um, the government uh, um, had been involved in sort of allocating um, welfare for a long time prior to its being democratic. And 
the the democratic um, uh, evolution, uh, in some cases revolution, in the um, 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, uh, did not <clears throat> did not dislodge this notion that that government had these responsibilities, and um, this is um, I, I think why. Um, in some ways, the political debate over these questions, it, it explains two differences. Uh, in the first place, the American welfare state remains, compared to Europe's, uh, significantly smaller in terms of um, the percentage of gross domestic product, for example, that is allocated to these kinds of programs. Um, secondly, um, in Europe, as opposed to America, um, the advocates of the welfare state are able to um, make their case to the voters in a fairly straightforward way. Um, the standard European social democratic pitch to the voters is, we urge you to vote for this package deal. It involves high taxes, not just on the wealthy, but really on everybody. And it involves this thick cluster of um, social welfare benefit programs. Um, people will be guaranteed housing and daycare and uh, college and on and on and on. Um, and, you know, the, the, the bargain is you just, you won't really have all that much disposable income after you've paid all the taxes. And what the, so, the European Social Democrats say is, um, on balance, this is a good deal for you. You'll be better off individually. Our country will be better off. Um, you, should, you should endorse this uh, program. America's um, liberals, the, the members of the Democratic Party, um, have never felt comfortable making the same sort of sales pitch. Um, they're... Uh, uh, they never quite trust the American voter to um, fully believe that um, uh, the benefits of the welfare state are worth the cost of the welfare state. And so as a result, the rhetorical framing of the enterprise is always in terms of the cost being um, negligible. Um, and the benefits being um, vast and splendid. When um, uh, in 2009, when um, the Obama administration was um, digging into the, the business of trying to sell the what became the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the first uh, Obama's first uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget um, talked at great length. Um, both in public and in internal administration councils, about how um, America's fiscal solvency um, as the baby boomers moved into retirement age and began uh, um, enrolling in Medicare and Social Security depended heavily, as he said over and over, on bending the cost curve for medical um, uh, benefits down. Um, so the, uh, the Obama administration was really trying to tell people that um, expanding um, health care coverage, um, uh, conferring 
big benefits on people was not <clears throat> was not in any important sense a cost, but it was really a cost savings. That by doing this, that government would uh, wind up spending less money rather than more on medical care. Um, it was only after the um, the law was enacted and implemented that um, some of the experts said, "Well, of course, everybody understood that." Um, um, if you're going to confer all these benefits, there are going to be costs involved. But um, say that up front and sort of dealing with the, the people in this uh, straightforward sort of way uh, seems to be something that, based on their calculation of what the American people are and are not prepared to hear, uh, American liberals think uh, is just not politically sound. Now, the title of your book is Never Enough, and I want to read a few lines uh, where you explain that. Now, you start out by saying that this is not the book you intended to write, and then you go on. The premise of the book I didn't write was that all the bitter accusations about the ins insufficiency of our social programs must point to a criterion of sufficiency, defining a completely adequate welfare state. My original goal was to examine the liberal account of that welfare state, a project that had to be abandoned when I realized it had no subject matter. Liberal rhetoric never engages this issue. What would be the size and nature of a welfare state that was not contemptibly austere, that did not urgently need a larger budget and a broader agenda? The answer to that question is, well, there is no answer, that there is no answer to this question. Now I want to give my view of what explains mm -hmm. this idea that they don't have a specific goal in mind. It's always just however big the welfare state is more and get your reaction to it. And um, I mean, my basic view is that if we're talking about the intellectual leadership and political leadership crusading for the welfare state rather than your average American, the motive is not actually to help poor people and foster prosperity or economic security, which is why they're very not very interested in trying to assess whether it's successful in doing those things. Rather, the primary goal and what actually drives them and counts for their actions is precisely to punish the successful and restrict capitalism. Um, well, maybe. Um, <clears throat> as um, uh, let, let, me, let me say a couple things to that. Um, I, I studied um, political science with um, people who were students or students of um, the um, famous, in a way, academics are famous, not in the way movie stars are famous, um, um, German emigre political philosopher Leo Strauss. Um, and one of the... Um, approaches that uh, Straussians, as they're called, um, often take is um, uh, to say that um, at least when you're, when you're studying important uh, historical philosophers, uh, people who are still being read hundreds of years after their death, people like Aristotle and Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, um, is that... Um, before you hasten on to the business of trying to um, understand them better than they understood themselves, 
that you need to attend very carefully to the work of trying to understand them as they understand themselves, um, which I think is <clears throat> whatever else you might think of, of um, uh, Leo Strauss and his books and his students and his and their projects and all of that. I think in a, on a common sense level um, is is very admirable um, that. Um, and, and, and not just when it comes to understanding um, Kierkegaard or Spinoza, but um, when it comes to understanding um, Uncle Fred at thanks, the, the Thanksgiving dinner table, um, trying to understand people as they understand themselves is your, your best approach, you know. Um, so I guess my question is uh, when you say that um, – the, what liberals are really up to is um, uh, um, opposing uh, capitalism and the people who do well under capitalism. Is that a, a fair summary of, of what you just said now? Right. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I think there's that's an element, but I I suspect that it is not how. Um, uh, your typical MSNBC host or Capitol Hill Democratic staffer or um, um, associate professor of cultural studies at um, um, uh, uh, a typical liberal arts college. I, I, I would be surprised if <clears throat> if you could give them truth serum and said, what gets you up and working on politics day after day? They would say, because we hate capitalism and capitalists. I, I, I think as they understand themselves, um, it is more that um, uh, the more powerful motive is that they feel a... Um, uh, that the, the being a morally decent person in modern times requires tending to um, uh, what the, the, the uh, uh, late political philosopher Kenneth Minogue called suffering situations. And therefore they think that decent people worry, uh, worry about these, these, these problems, they work to resolve them, and they are um, amenable uh, or in, in, if not enthusiastic about organizing government activities to um, reduce the amount of suffering. Um, I have a, um, uh, if you'll permit a, a shameless plug, I have a book coming out later this year about the role that compassion plays in um, liberal thinking and uh, action. It's, uh, the book is titled The Pity Party and subtitled a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. And in a, in a certain sense, the second book um, attempts to answer the question that I posed and you quoted in the first book, Never Enough, which is, um, why is it that um, um, liberals go on constantly um, uh, that, that there is this kind of ever-receding uh, goal line that uh, in, in their own work and for the countries they wish to govern, uh, no matter how much you do to address the problems of the poor, 
it seems like there's always much more to be done. And I think the answer is that this is a way of sort of moral validation for them. They, it's, it's how they feel good about themselves and the countries they live in. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff here because I, I definitely agree that it's wrong to jump directly to motives if you can't answer the arguments. But on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of mysteries that one would have to solve if one is saying that they're actually interested in helping people and that that's the motive. And it would be, for instance, why is there no excitement or interest in the fact that capitalism or what uh, the degree of capitalism that's been allowed in countries like India or China has lifted billions of people up out of poverty? Uh, I mean, and I mean, we're getting close to actually getting rid of global poverty. Or, I mean, take the, you know, you would think that even if you thought high taxes on the rich were necessary in order to help poor people, you would be thankful to the people paying the bill for all of your programs. And yet instead, what you get is this really vicious attack that says you didn't build that, you guys are selfish for wanting to keep the money you earned. Indeed, you didn't really earn it. And so it's, I think it's, it's at least helpful to think about those questions about what explains what really is a curious fact that there's so little recognition or appreciation on their part for the benefits of economic freedom and that it's only the desire to expand government programs that seems to get them excited. But uh, yeah, I do, yeah. in our remaining time, want to move on really uh -huh. quickly to um, okay. the political right today. Now, for, I, 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 can, can I can I double back real fast? Oh, sure, a, please. Um, I, I just I, I, I don't disagree with anything you said there. Um, but I think that um, one interesting thing, and I, I talk about this to some extent in Never Enough, um, is that um, the situation of the left in the 21st century is different uh, than it was in the 20th and in the, the 19th, in that um, advocates for activist intervention as government now um, do not have, the way they did 50 or 75 years ago, the um, the possibility of a sort of a coherent alternative to market uh, economies. Um, back, um, there, for example, there were new dealers who um, who really understood their what they were up to as working towards a kind of hazy um, uh, amalgam of the Soviet Union and uh, capitalism. Um, they thought, in, in short, um, the left used to think that uh, socialism and planned economies, that this was a viable alternative. Um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, hardly anyone and, and, um, talks this way anymore, and the ones who do are not really taken seriously on the left anymore, um, w which creates a, a different situation than what we, we faced in the middle of the 20th century, in that um, the modern left has no sort of coherent, um, clearly set aside alternative to capitalism and has to talk about modifying it or adjusting it in entirely ad hoc terms, which the, and the problem that creates for defenders of the market is, on the one hand, um, uh, we've won. This is, um, this is a, a, a more um, 
the, the people who opposed the market sound much less coherent and, and sure of themselves than they did um, decades ago. On the other hand, they also sound much less dangerous, really, since they're not talking about sweeping things away, but only adjusting this and uh, adding to that. Um, they don't sound as dangerous, and it's it's uh, it's harder to make people see that, to make ordinary voters see that one thing leads to another, and then another, and another, and that there are big dangers here. Um, so to take the final issue, I want to uh, comment on a little bit, and that's the right today. Um, and let me put it this way. Uh, first, what is your view? Because there's a way in which you treat them in never enough as opponents of the welfare state. But if we actually observe them in action, um, they tend to expand it. But even in rhetoric, there's a real, you, you point out very cleverly, there's always the to be sure line. Anytime they say anything critical of the welfare state, it's always followed up by, but to be sure we need one, we need a safety net and so on. And your own view, uh, although you're certainly critical of the welfare state, is that the right should embrace it and fight for, I take it, a more efficient and, and perhaps smaller welfare state. So I wonder if you could give me your thoughts on what the right stands for, what it should stand for. And then as one kind of caveat on that, as you point out, there's certain dynamics once you grant that the welfare state is uh, should exist that lead it to expand. So what is your view of how that process could be stopped and that you could keep it uh, under wraps? Um, I think that... Um in some ways, this is the mirror image of what I was just saying about the left, that there is a, um, um, a, an absolutely intellectually tidy and even compelling argument for not having a welfare state, um, for saying that um, the, um, uh, the, the Bill of Rights was, uh, the FDR Second Bill of Rights was completely wrong, um, that government shouldn't be involved in these things at all. Um, that, uh, and in a way, um, this was, uh, <clears throat> as it pertained to domestic policy, this was the, um, Barry Goldwater, um, uh, platform in 1964, and Goldwater got 38% of the vote, um, which, uh, and I think if, if you were to try to run on that, um, um, platform, uh, again, you'd be lucky to get 38% of the vote. Um, so I'm, um, uh, you know, I think I think you could have a, a sort of a, a political philosophy discussion and um, define in, in in purely abstract terms the ideal set of domestic political um, uh, domestic policy arrangements. But then if um, once you leave the seminar room uh, and you have to deal with the political reality that's out there, uh, people who um, care about the preservation of constitutional government um, and freedom have to um, uh, cope with the political realities as they are rather than as we wish they would be. Um, so I, what I do in Never Enough is to make an argument for um, kind of the least bad um, uh, arrangements, which um, to me involve um, 
specifying that uh, the welfare state um, should help people who really need help rather than, to borrow a phrase from uh, William F. Buckley, uh, rather than blacken the sky with crisscrossing dollars, helping people um, at every point uh, on the map and at every point of the income distribution curve. Um, the uh, There are people who really should be, uh, if you're going to have a welfare state, kind of net beneficiaries of the wealth it rearranges. Um, but the... Um, dishonest and destructive rationale for the welfare state that we've built is that nearly everyone except for Silicon Valley zillionaires should be a net importer of the dollars that are arranged by the government. And that's logically impossible. It's mathematically impossible. And it's politically destructive to encourage the belief that such a thing is not only possible, but that, um, People have a, have a right to demand it from the government. And so, then, how do you how do you see it being able to keep the welfare state from growing out of control? Given, like, for instance, you point out, for any program is going to leave certain people who are, you know, very sympathetic uncovered, and this leads to a tendency mm-hmm. over time to expand it. Well, I think the uh, the best check on. Um, uh, we're a democracy, after all. So um, um, uh, things that people want, they're eventually going to get, and things that people don't want, they're they're not going to get. Um, and to circle back to what I was saying earlier, what I still think characterizes um, uh, American democracy is, uh, however attractive the benefits of these programs might be, people are still reluctant to pay for them, and Democrats in Congress and running for president are still reluctant to ask people to pay for them. Um, both in 2008, when they were running for president, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton promised that if they were elected, that no American making less than $250,000 a year would see any sort of increase in federal taxes. Um, after he was reelected in 2012, um, Obama accepted a deal where that $250,000 um, uh, ceiling was raised to $400,000, which means that over 99% of the American people, according to the terms of the fiscal cliff deal uh, settled at the start of 2013, um, have, um, are, are guaranteed in perpetuity, unless you know Congress passes a, a, a different tax code. Um, to the same tax rates that they've they've had since uh, the George W. Bush tax cuts. Uh, if you take this approach and you say to people, um, we want the government to do lots of stuff, but hardly any of you are going to pay for it, the government's not going to do all that much stuff. Um, so I think that um, the, 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 the foundation on which a, a reasonably robust conservatism opposed to the liberal project can establish itself is, um, all right, this is the budget perimeter defined by the taxes, not just that, that we want to see, but even the Democrats are willing to call for, until and unless Democrats can find the language and the courage to say to people, as European Social Democrats do, here's the package deal, you'll all be better off. Let's make the best or, or the, the, the least bad of the welfare state that exists within that budget. How can people follow your work? 
Um, most of my uh, writing appears uh, in the Claremont Review of Books, and that is um, uh, retrievable at Claremont, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T dot org. Um, I have a, a poorly tended individual website, WilliamVogley.com. Um, and as I say, I'll have a, um, a book, The Pity Party, out from HarperCollins in November. My guest today has been William Vogley. Bill, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. My pleasure. So at the end of the interview, Bill and I discussed this idea that in order to have political influence today, you can't question the welfare state. You have to accept it now and over the long term as something that's necessary because Americans view it as unquestionable. Now, if you're a political candidate, that may be true for the time being. But I think our goal needs to be precisely to change the way that people think in this issue. And I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, it's possible. I've read some intellectuals, some very thoughtful intellectuals who take it in effect as impossible to change people's mind in this. But it's relevant that, first of all, there was a time when people did not accept the welfare state. It took indeed, as we talked about, the left 50 years in America to convince Americans to embrace a system of handouts, of welfare, of granting people the unearned. And even then, they had to do it through subterfuge, through misrepresenting what it was that they stood for. So it's possible to change people's ideas. And another piece of the evidence is just introspective, that if you can understand and grasp that the welfare state is unnecessary and immoral, then any thinking person can grasp that. It's simply not true that because someone is receiving a handout that therefore he's intellectually committed to getting one forever. In fact, it's notable that even today, uh, many Americans are committed to Social Security precisely because they don't see it as a handout. They're, pre they're committed to Medicare precisely because they don't see it as a handout. And those programs, which are seen explicitly as handouts, are much less politically popular. So ideas can change, a culture can change, and that then has to be our goal. Our goal has to be able to formulate the arguments and make the arguments and market those arguments so that a, pol a politician in 10 years or 15 years can go out there with a constituency who supports getting rid of a system that um, forces us all into these bureaucratic one-size-fits-all schemes that rob us of the freedom to make the choices that will shape our own lives. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.